Hey, I'm Kyle Oki. And I'm Jason Hansen. And you are listening to the Agronomist Happy Hour podcast. Rock and roll. That's why they drink vodka over there. You're better off spraying the vodka on those last quarters. <laughs> <laughs> Drought is no fun to endure. It, it's Devil's right hand. <laughs> it, you, oh no, all... that's beer. <laughs> well, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to the Agronomist Happy Hour. And yet again, we've got another really good one for you. And we are going all the way out to western Kansas. So... <laughs> We have someone that we really enjoy talking to, and and has a lot of agriculture that, at least for me in Western North Dakota, has a lot of striking similarities on how their agriculture works. But before we introduce who we're talking to on the podcast, let's stop and listen to a quick message from our sponsors. Are you a consultant that's looking for a better way to organize your day? Or your life? Are you a farmer that's looking for a way to keep better field records? Or get your hired help to the right fields. Gosh, that would be important. You know, Jason, there's a tool that's called FarmQA that could do a really good job of that. Kyle, they build digital tools for agronomy. That's what I hear. But don't take our word for it. CropLife has listed FarmQA as a top agricultural tool for the last two years. And they're based right here in Fargo, North Dakota. And you can find them on FarmQA.com, FarmQA on Twitter. And who do we always say to find out for more information? That'd be our good friend, Ben Munson. He will hook you up. Check him out. That sounds like we we knew what we were doing. (laughs) (laughs) You hear that, folks? We're stepping up our game, and we're we're trying to figure some of this out. So We're going to bumble through things like we have for a while, but that's okay. You've stuck with us this long. You're in it up to your knees now, at least. Anyways, it's time to podcast. And like we've said, who we have on the podcast this afternoon is Holly Thrashers. Holly is a seed agronomist all the way out in western Kansas. And we've known her from the past, but she is absolutely doing a lot of fun things on social media, talking about seed, talking about agronomics that we really find fascinating and really spurred this discussion to get kind of a conversation going and getting Holly on the happy hour. So... Holly, why don't you introduce yourself just a little bit, who you are, if you want to share who you work for, what you do, where you're from, all that fun stuff. And, you know, in typical happy hour fashion, we're just going to drink beer and uh, see where this goes. You bet. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much for having me on the podcast. It's fun to see some familiar faces, both Jason and Kyle. Like uh, you said, we have a little bit of background in working together in the past. So um, Holly Thrasher, I do hail from Kansas. I live in Stafford, which is kind of the western edge of central Kansas, but grew up in south central Kansas, went to K-State where I did my bachelor's and master's degree. And um, I was in college for six years and I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I grew up. So after grad school, I went to work for Pioneer in Western Kansas, Garden City. I was at the, um, the Garden City Research Station. So uh, I was working on the research side where I was in charge of the unregulated drought trial and yield test trial. So it really gave me appreciation for drought. 
obviously a big concern for us here in Kansas, and then also um, research seed development in in general and the products that get brought to the market, the timeline and everything that goes into that. So was there for just under three years. And then um, I was a technical seed manager there for six years and then had the opportunity to get to find a different job. And so um, I worked for LG Seeds very, very briefly, where I found that you, you kind of stumble into jobs that you're like, ah, oh, this is just not the right culture or job for me. So I was there briefly and then went to work for FBN. At the time, they were, um, they were looking for some agronomic support and educators, so worked with them for about a year. And then I had the opportunity to come to work for Bayer as a DeKalb Asgro technical agronomist, which has been a great, great position for me, a great company, great culture. It was getting to work with some people that I knew from past careers and jobs, and it's a ton of fun. I love it. So I get to support the DeKalb Asgro business for pretty much where I live in Stafford West with the exception of like far Northwest Kansas. So representing the brands and educating dealers, working with growers, working with my field service reps on um, educating them on products. So it's, it's a great role that I always say that it's kind of like the perfect space between research and sales because you're not really doing either one of those things, which is good because I don't think I could do sales at all. And I've done research and I appreciate research, but I'm way too much of a people person to just do research. So it's kind of like a great place space to be between those types of, of jobs. That's a good way to explain it. I think, I think every seed company has their, you know, whatever they want to call them, they're all technical agronomists. Mm-hmm. The way you want mm-hmm. to look at it, I think some get called product agronomists, some are technical, some are just right. agronomists, but they, you, you kind of serve as that conduit between plant breeders and research and the, the people who are actually physically helping position things on the farm. Right. Yep. Absolutely. So it's kind of fun. You have to take some really technical stuff and then try to explain it in a way that's not as technical. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's, that's the best way. Very true. Very true. So I have relatives in Abilene in Manhattan, Kansas. Mm-hmm. And when we travel down there, uh, it feels very Eastern North Dakota-ish weather-wise, that type of thing. Is uh, is Western Kansas probably like Western North Dakota to some degree? Yeah, I would say so. Um, you know, Western Kansas, we have limited rainfall, um, a lot of irrigation, not a lot of humidity. Um, we deal with elevation in Western Kansas, especially in Northwest Kansas, which really kind of changes the game in, in how you manage products and in your crops. Um, a lot of heat, a lot of drought generally. Um, so yeah, I, I think it probably does line up a lot with, uh, with that Western North Dakota environment. How, how was your drought this last year? You know, we were really dry, um, last, last year we started, we started the year off the planting season off in really good shape with some moisture. Um, so Scott city, which is like West central Kansas, they actually had a, what they call a hundred year rain event where they got like five inches of rain in one shot. So we had some pretty decent moisture right around planting. 
and then it just turned off. So um, we were we were under a lot of um, drought conditions this past year, and then in the fall we just didn't catch any any rains. So we're we're pretty dry right now, and it's a geography that especially far western Kansas, a lot of the acres that get planted. It's so up in the air, dryland acres, whether or not they'll get planted to dryland corn up until that point in the spring, whether or not you've got moisture or not. So, so but before we continue on this topic, because I, I want to dig in more on just your guys' current conditions and how this past year went, but uh, just explain Kansas agriculture for someone that's not from Kansas, uh, from, from east to west, north to south. I mean, is it just a corn and soybean and wheat Thing, or is there more than that that you guys deal with in agriculture? Yeah. So Kansas is um, huge wheat, winter wheat, hardbread winter wheat. We grow a ton of wheat down here, a lot of corn and a lot of soybeans, a lot of grain sorghum. So those are the main crops. We do have some canola, um, winter canola, and sunflowers, a few of those specialty crops you'll find across the state. But what's interesting is so from west to east, you're looking at 17 inches of rainfall in western Kansas up to, I think, southeast Kansas is right around, I want to say, 42 inches. That's not the geography that I cover. Um, and so you have quite the range in, in rainfall. You do have the elevation to deal with in, in northwest Kansas. You've got western Kansas where things cool down a lot at night, and so that's certainly different than eastern Kansas where you have that humidity where things don't cool down at night. So product selection becomes a little different there. Um, Western Kansas, we deal with a lot of high pH soils. And from a maturity standpoint, for example, with soybeans, you could have anywhere from around a 2.8 maturity soybean all the way down to like a group five soybean. So huge range wow. in maturities and then the uh, corn you could have as short as 95 days that's not typical but some 95 day all the way up to 120 day maturity corn so just huge differences in the maturities that you deal with we have with our our wheat acres we have a very large double crop market for soybeans so if we have timely rains and, and soil moisture, we do have a lot of double crop soybeans that go in after wheat oh. um, because we do have hard red winter wheat. But typically, you know, that south central um, geography is getting cut the first part of June, mid part of June. So we still have time to get that, that second crop in. So And that second crop, what's the maturity then of soybeans? Is it still that range you talked about or is it? Generally double crop soybeans, um, you know, if we have like irrigated beans will shorten our maturities up a little bit on soybeans around like 3.7 to 4.0. But generally, if you're going into a dry land situation, double crop, it's going to be like a 4.2 all the way up to like far south, east Kansas. That's where we're placing those group five beans. Okay, so double crop is probably more in an eastern (laughs) Kansas yeah, south, okay. south central, south central, and southeast Kansas. Yep. Okay. Yep. And so, what's the mix of irrigation to dryland as you're in, like where you are in the area you serve? Mm-hmm. Right. So where I'm at, um, western Kansas, it's probably around sixty percent irrigated. 
um, 40% dry land it, in, in the key areas that I cover. So we do have quite a bit of, of dry land and, and it kind of just depends on, on where you're at. If uh, like Southwest Kansas, Jason, you've been to, you've been to sublet America. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, pivots up. So there's a lot of, there, there are just those areas where there's a lot of irrigation versus south of Hayes, Kansas. There's not as much irrigation in that geography or further north. There may not be as much irrigation. So that's more of our dryland sector. In your opinion, in your area, what does the wheat crop look like right now? Like doo-doo. <laughs> not good. <laughs> just, just dry? Very dry. Very dry. And then um, in addition to being dry, we had that um, big windstorm back yes. in December, which caused um, just, you know, a lot of static electricity issues with uh, with the wheat crop. So it's it's looking pretty rough. It is looking pretty rough. We have a lot of wheat acres out this year. Um, guys just kept drilling wheat. It got into November and it was like, just park already, be done. But guys just kept going with commodity prices where they were and kind of kind of sounds like North Dakota when uh, you get good seeding conditions early and the wheat goes planting really well it feels like more wheat gets planted than they want yeah but when it goes yeah. when it's going good like we shouldn't slow down <laughs> just right. keep keep putting in wheat acres so um yeah back to what i was thinking rewinding back to this last season so it sounded mm-hmm. like you guys started in all right shape mm-hmm. and then things kind of went dry from there. So, I mean, right. Kansas crop conditions uh, were relatively okay besides being a dry season. I mean, right. what did, did you guys so, g- get what you normally do or maybe just a little below average? Or I would say the dry, the dry land acre was, was below average. Um, we had a lot of heat and we had, it was dry. Now, irrigated acres, we had some phenomenal yields. And I think that that was just attributed to, um, we had low disease pressure this past year mm. with as dry as it was. Um, and I know the guys that were irrigating were just thinking, oh, my goodness, is it ever going to end? Are we ever going to get to the finish line with, with watering the crop? But, you know, in September, it just we, we had had no reprieve. And I remember thinking that, that we were getting to the point where um, it was – I thought that we were just – going to really kind of taper off on our yields and the crop was finishing pretty fast because of the because of the heat and how dry it was we had just some phenomenal yields a lot of guys joined that 300 bushel club and Mm. i i got the chance to ride along with one of my seed dealers at harvest and, and it was on his own farm and he's like i've never had so many of my growers that have hit the the yield levels that that we did this year so it was good corn growing weather it was not great soybean growing conditions but it was really good corn growing weather because we just didn't have just didn't have that um disease pressure and just keep pumping the water and i think it helped that with commodity prices where they were folks were certainly more willing to take a more intensive management approach. They weren't cutting back on inputs as much, you know, like, Hey, well, yeah, we'll go ahead and put fungicide on um, and just plan for some of those, some of those things that, that take you to the next level. Right. 
So it's interesting you 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 you're talking about this with the irrigated acres in Kansas. How because of low disease pressure, mm-hmm. you saw incredible yields. Now we can say the same thing, but not in North Dakota necessarily. I mean, we were in a different situation, and we can always back up and help explain that. But go to Iowa or go to Southern Minnesota, and and those guys on their dryland acres knocked out some incredible yields. And they all said the same thing. They're like, we're not exactly sure where this came from. But they yeah. started with good subsoil moisture mm-hmm. and, and good conditions. And then it was just hot, but it was dry. And they didn't have the disease they normally would have had. And, I mean, they knocked some yields out of the park. And so yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting hearing you share that. And, of course, you have to have water to make 300 bushel corn in, mm-hmm. in Kansas. But uh, what does the outlook feel like? You know, because now we're now we're fast forward. We're in January of 2022, and yeah, back in December, just a month ago, I remember seeing this whole giant dust storms. I saw it on your your Twitter insane. account. Yeah, it was insane. Yeah. Oh, it was. It, they were there were dust clouds that were getting picked up when uh, they were getting tornadoes in December in Minnesota and in down in Missouri and Illinois. Mm-hmm. There was like, yeah, there was this just wild dust storm that picked up from you guys. You were so dry. Mm-hmm. And so it's a completely different situation than you were a year ago. I, I'm just curious, uh, how do you think that's going to affect production? I mean, you have irrigation. You can kind of control that a little bit, but I got to imagine that that's going to put a big strain on. I, I mean, I don't know if you guys are limited by the amount of water you can use mm-hmm. or, or anything like that. So maybe walk through for us just listening about that. You know, uh, even if you're irrigated, I got to imagine the drought's going to affect everyone unless we see some kind of recharging moisture. Right, right. Which hopefully, I mean, generally our our spring rains um, are in that that March April time frame. We start seeing some okay. some timely rain. So hopefully, fingers crossed, we get into um, a little bit more of a um, into a better position with our with our moisture. Um, I think, and I looked at this yesterday, so far southwest Kansas, so like Johnson City, um, Elkhart, Big Bow, that area, Ulysses, kind of that way, way, way southwest. They're, I think, D3 in um, in their drought rating. We're still technically just in an abnormally dry situation, so um, we could be worse. That said... Yes, um, I think that we're going to need some really timely spring rains, especially for that for the production on those dry land acres. Um, irrigated, yeah, we do have limitations around some of our our ability to water, but ultimately, it just like everything depends on what Mother Nature throws at us. Does Does your product line? Do you work with sorghum? I do work with sorghum. Yes. If there was anything last year on Twitter that just captured my imagination, it was that crop. And I, and I don't know why there was all of a sudden there's like all this sorghum stuff. And if, you know, we got maybe some sorghum sedan crosses or sedan mm-hmm. grass and it's chopped for silage and all that. And to, to kind of see that getting talked <coughs> about uh, the amount of water it uses compared to corn mm-hmm. and yields. And it was, yeah, it was just very captivating. Right. So I, I don't know. I don't know squat about sorghum other than it's like really cool on Twitter. And I, and I really want to plant some just to see how I would do up here. It is itchy though. Oh yeah. It is an itchy, itchy crop. 
No, we do have a lot of grain sorghum specifically in those areas where we we have those dry land acres um, and, and we are low on moisture. A lot of, I think what a lot of the driving factor for last year's crop was commodity prices. So at the time, China was really demanding a lot of sorghum exports. And so um, that really drove up a lot of the sorghum acres that got planted. Guys saw, you know, from an input standpoint and uh, a profitability standpoint compared to other crops dry land that it penciled out really well. So um, two years ago, so 2020, we had fantastic grain sorghum yields um, because we had a lot of, so we were really, in 2020, we were really trying to remember now, we were really wet in July. And then in August, we were, um, we were dry, but um, we had a lot of timely rains in 2020 that really drove some pretty incredible grain sorghum yields. And then this past year, there was an uptick in those acres and um, we had more of a normal weather pattern. So yields were average, I would say maybe a little bit below average in some situations. So curious, what's, what's an average sorghum yield? Um, it depends. In some really tough dry land situations, you know, 75 bushel. We had dry land grain sorghum in 2020 that was 150. So a lot of guys will try to, if you have limited water, um, they think, well, I'm going to go, rather than plant corn, I'm going to go plant 200 bushel, or I'm going to go grow 200 bushel grain sorghum. It takes a lot to get 200 bushel grain sorghum. So that takes that, that takes some pretty intensive management um, to get to that level. But I would say that, that we had a lot of 150 bushel grain sorghum in 2020, just because we had... Um, we had pretty decent growing conditions. So what is it with that crop? So I'm still fascinated by it. And the, okay, so I know it's itchy now. Right? It is itchy, yes. Yeah. yeah. So is that when sorghum is itchy. So when you're harvesting it, that's mm-hmm. the, where the itchiness comes from? Okay. Yes, yes. Or if you if you have to go walk grain sorghum, huh. especially after it's headed. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the thing about grain sorghum is that um, it tillers. So kind of like wheat, where we have the ability to put on additional heads, given what what our conditions and season are. Um, it also, like from a leaf standpoint, it's very like powdery, waxy. So um, it doesn't lose water or lose moisture the way that corn does. Um, it also has the, and in grain sorghum, you'll see, if you go look at a, a product guide, there's pre-flowering stress ratings, and then there's post-flowering stress ratings. So um, grain sorghum has the ability under stress to essentially just shut down, quit growing until you get until you get moisture again. So it's, it's a very interesting crop. Um, and one that before I came to work with Bayer, I hadn't, you know, I hadn't worked with in the portfolio of any of the other companies that I'd worked for as much. I did not know that. Yeah, I've always understood sorghum as a... It's a drier weather crop, and mm-hmm. and at least in my head, there was this teetering line as you went west, and it, well, for us, as you went south, but then as you were west of a certain line where right. you had little rainfall, that, that sorghum seemed to be the higher acres versus corn just because you could economically produce more marketable bushels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so with some of the key... Growing areas where sorghum is raised, South Texas, 
where agronomically they're looking for different things. So they have more humidity, more moisture, excuse me. So they're looking for um, disease type resistance that we don't have to deal with. In my geography, yield and standability. So that's the other thing is that with grain sorghum, a lot of times it gets planted or it gets harvested late um, in the season because you're going to go take out your corn and your and your soybeans and then and then you get to your sorghum crop. And so standability, especially post freeze standability, is really important because. There's no grumpy like farmer that's picking sorghum off the ground grumpy. <laughs> that's the worst, huh? No, uh, it's not good. That's for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> so yield and standability are, are really important. And then um, several years ago, we we started dealing with sugarcane aphid um, as a pest. And so a lot of the breeding efforts pivoted to sugarcane aphid tolerance within a lot of companies line up for, for the product offering that they had um, because it's not a yield limiting pest, but it causes a honeydew that will like gum up and create a lot of challenges in harvestability. So huh. again, no grumpy like dealing with that kind of grumpy. So is there an insect resistance to insecticides issue with it? or no. is I've seen some pictures. It's just unbelievable how many there are. Right, right. So it's not an insect resistance. Um, I believe it's some Vonto that you can spray on it that is specific to sugarcane aphids. But um, the issue was around um, spraying it and not killing your beneficials and then not the uptick in like headworm and those types of other insects. So because because we had identified kind of that native tolerance to sugarcane aphids, they were breeding for um, for that type of, and it's not resistance, it's just that tolerance um, where you're, it's it's able to keep the sugarcane aphid colonies at a more manageable level, if you will. Okay, so this isn't necessarily a uh, GMO trait. Mm-mm, this no, is, this is a naturally just, bred resistance. Yep, okay. Yep, yep, yep. Well, well, question I have now is, is there such thing as a GMO Sorghum, like herbicide resistance or any insecticide, nothing, anything like that. So there, there are a couple of our, a couple of other companies within the industry who have bred some herbicide tolerances. Um, I Flex is old place. I was gonna say <laughs> I have to look it up. Sorghum Partners, so S and W, theirs is a tolerance to Assure. Oh, okay. Um, type herbicides, but the iFlex is Ulta, um, is this is one of the seed brands. And I think Pioneer has also has um Imiflex green sorghum is Oh, okay. So you can spray with imidazolone, uh like your pursuit or beyond well probably beyond is probably yeah. what you can spray with. Like clear field crafts. Yes. Okay. So you have FOP resistant, which I could see that being a big deal. Uh, having having a group on grass in a grass crop. So, from what I've seen, a lot of the products that are currently on the market, I have these technologies. I don't know that I've seen the yield performance there. Sure. And so that's where I'm not quite sure where we're at yet. Um, like I was at K State when they were working on the ALS resistant grain sorghum, and so kind of coming back and 
they're talking about these technologies, I'm like, I thought that got put on the shelf because they already had resistant shatter cane in Johnson grass. So it's like, sure. Sure. What, what's the, what's the longevity of, of those? I don't, I don't know. It doesn't last very long. Yeah. I mean, we can, no. we can share all the resistances we see, but, but that's understandable. Um, yeah. You, you have uh well, where was I trying to go with this? Anytime you introduce, especially some very unique and different agronomic trait. So if these are herbicide resistance traits mm-hmm. or, this goes the same for disease resistance and some of these others. When you breed that kind of stuff in, you're taking a lot of energy and resources in order to satisfy that new trait or that new genetic diversity that that plant would have normally wouldn't have normally had. And so right. it takes a lot of energy, and that takes away generally from yield. I mean, that's what it's coming at the cost at. I mean, that's for us uh, up north, and and maybe it's the same for you guys on soybeans. Uh, you get into yeah. some of these high pH areas and we deal with iron deficiency chlorosis and you pick an IDC tolerant bean and you don't have an IDC area and you put an IDC bean in an area that doesn't have salt issues or high pH and it mm-hmm. will have its butt handed to it by yeah. just about yeah. every other bean variety out there. So I could I could see where, I understand where you're going with the grain sorghum thing on the herbicide tolerances, right. you know? Yeah. Yep. Well, into it's just, you know, what's the, is it a rescue, do you treatment, is it economical for growers? And I don't, I don't know what the answer is or isn't. Um, I mean, I think it's great that there's different technologies that they're bringing forward and different options for, for growers, but. It's nice to have the option. How are your soybean acres looking for next year in that part of the world? I think they're going to (sighs) be. I think they'll be good. A lot of it is we're a very, the, the sales team that I'm on is where I'm at and then um, to the east. So kind of like that central Kansas corridor. You know, a lot of acres um, are that double crop swing acre, and it's very, very dependent on whether or not the double crop acre goes out. We have a lot of weed acres. We have a lot of irrigated weed, weed acres. So, um I think that we'll see some double crop grain sorghum. I think we'll see if we have ideal conditions, we'll have um, a fair amount of soybeans. I think that we'll have a pretty strong soybean year um, next year. We're going to have a big one up here. Yeah, yeah it's uh, it's becoming very evident that we're going to have a big soybean year. And, and I mean, part of it is we dealt with a big drought year. Well, back up. Nothing to do with the draw year. Everything to do with the extremely high price of nitrogen. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's very true for where where we can grow soybeans. Guys are looking at input costs and and probably um, more willing to to grow soybeans here. Now that said, one of the challenges that we do have, at least Western Kansas, in growing soybeans, is our high pH acres and having products that handle that. Um, we're in a, a maturity that typically, and across any brand I've ever worked for before, they don't do a lot of screening um, from a from a breeder standpoint on soybeans in this maturity. I think a lot of times that is a characteristic that they're screening heavily for in those early RMs where like Minnesota, uh, Iowa, um, North Dakota where where they have those high pH acres but we're kind of such a niche 
market and maturity for high pH um, that we that we really have to work hard to identify what's going to work for us. And to your point, Kyle, around you know having a a bean that has high pH tolerance, that if you're going into an irrigated situation where a lot of the pH that we can deal with is because of cut ground. Um, so if you're going into uh, a pivot that's got spots where you've got high pH, but it's irrigated, so you have a pretty high yield expectation, a lot of the soybeans in that irrigated market do have infrared iron applied. Okay. Um, but there's also that need for what is the native tolerance to, um, to high pH. Yeah, you I know. High. What's your number? What's high? Just curious. Um, so we run we run a lot of pHs that are in the eights. I think the screening site that I have is like eight four. That's pretty high. That's high. <laughs> yeah. That's like Snoop Dogg high. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that you don't have a, a XR seven Snoop Dogg variety bean. That's <laughs> no, I don't think so. Four point <laughs> maturity. They don't, they don't put me in charge of naming anything, though. <laughs> Probably for good reason. So if you have... That, that, uh, did, that did just give me a great content idea for high pH videos. So, so. There you go. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're glad we can uh, spur some inspiration. Like a Snoop Dogg, I don't know, like big top hat or something and a cloak and a... I don't know. Ooh, I can't wait to see it now. <laughs> yep. So if you have high pH, do you have... Is your market... It, uh, is kosher a problem in your market with those high pHs as a weed or is, is we, not not so much? You, you know, kosher was a big issue um, for for a long time. Um, now, I mean, I feel like we've probably gotten a pretty decent handle on um, on kosher. The problem that weed that we have now is is um, Palmer. So okay, deal with a lot of of. Palmer amaranth, Palmer pigweed. So we still get our butts handed to us by Kosha, but uh, we haven't the the Palmer thing because of your guys's dealings with it mm-hmm. scares the hell out of us. Mm-hmm. But I'd say water hemp is the one that's really been giving a lot of heartburn in the eastern part of the state. Yeah, I was gonna say east. They have water hemp. It's not as big of an issue for for us out west, but. Um, yeah, pigweed. Oof. That's that's been uh definitely a, a very difficult weed for us to control. Yeah, we've had some uh we've had some feeds, some screenings, some things that get shipped up from Kansas and they've got mm-hmm. that's where some of the Palmer has entered the state uh, in CRP mixes or that. And I, I don't know how you distinguish or screen that because its size of seed is very similar to other things that aren't an issue, but if they get into those mixes and that's that's interesting because uh I would say 18, 19, 20, those years, probably normal, kosher, feeling maybe getting a handle. We mm-hmm. get dry in 21, and we just, we got it handed to us. Terrible. Yeah. And okay. so we're big wins again, like you had, and um, you're out, I'm out doing some soil sampling, and, and there's kosher blowing by, and, you know, they're spreading seeds, and it's coming from people, uh, farms, and they're going across this farm, and they're going across the next farm. Mm-hmm. So there's there's going to be a, a big issue, and but yeah, the thing that scares me about this Palmer thing is hearing you talked about, hey, yeah, we got a handle on kosher, mm-hmm. but this whole Palmer thing came in, 
And sure, maybe he got a handle on it, but this Palmer thing is maybe just that much worse. But mm-hmm. Palmer seems to be a southwestern United States origin issue. And so it I know it goes all over the south that it gives issues, but it seems like in at least this is how it's always been explained to me, or at least how I've always interpreted the issue is that either you have a Palmer issue or a water hemp issue. And I'm sure there's people listening, and I'd love for you to share, that you deal with both. Or or I'm totally wrong, but it seems like Palmer is maybe more of a droughty, tolerant, uh, can handle some of those. Oh, my goodness, yeah. Like, there's, there's pigweed that this spring, in my driveway, my rock driveway, was like this tall putting on when holly means this tall she was holding her fingers up showing roughly one inch in height seed that somehow came up through the rocks in my driveway it was just like and and it and it was you know may through november this stuff's still out there setting seed putting on seed so yeah i think that that it's very fair to say that in the southern states kind of all of a, all of that we we you either deal with um water hemp or or pigweeds now i think that um hopefully the incidents of both are yeah i don't want to deal with both so i don't even want to i don't even want to think about that <laughs> your market out in that part of the world is is it uh i know kansas has a, a big influence of independent crop consultants Mm-hmm. Uh, is it, you, you deal with that as far as in the territory uh, mm-hmm. farmers and that type of thing just looking for a description of that or egg what's egg retail like that type of right thing. right so in, in this geography ag retail does have some presence for crop consulting um but primarily there are a lot of um, independent crop consultants as well as there's two companies one's crop quest the other one is Servitech. Yep. have a footprint and origin in Southwest Kansas. So a lot of crop consulting goes on out here. So large farms where, especially because of the irrigation and the irrigation scheduling, obviously just all of the in-season scouting, there's, there's a pretty, I want to say the number is probably around uh, across what probably around 300 um, for the number of consultants pretty easily across like independent consultants and then CropQuest and Servitech. Yeah. So that's, that's a pretty good sized group. Yeah, it is. Um, and what's interesting is I put something on TikTok just asking like, because we deal with so many different crop consultants here, what's it like in other geographies? You know, is it led by ag retail? Is it your, is it your seed dealer that comes out and does some field checks with you? Do you have, cause out here, that's that's primarily a weekly field check, irrigation scheduling, scheduling your herbicide programs and when stuff needs sprayed, et cetera. That's what I find uniquely interesting about the consultants that you were just explaining versus ours. Mm-hmm. We're dominantly dry land. Mm-hmm. So the irrigation and scheduling irrigation and knowing when and how much is a completely right. foreign topic for most North Dakota agronomists. I there are exceptions. We have pivots. We have irrigation. But right. that if you were to poll North Dakota independent consultants, it, it's a small number that right. that have to deal with how to deal with irrigation schedule. Yeah. Well, and certainly like I crop consulted two summers in college. So mad props 
to people that craft consult because it is, it is like a grind for sure. And you get to the point where irrigation scheduling is when you're, when you're at those um, moisture uptake times, your evapotranspiration, I mean, you're using like more water than you can put on. So it's just like, just keep the pivot running. So it's not necessarily a, um, you get to stop the pivot, but it's just, you know, a measure of, of where you're at. And I think that speaks to, you hit 300 bushel yields. A lot of that is the intensive management that goes into it, but it's eyes and boots on the ground every week, checking that crop and ensuring that everything that crop needs is taken care of. There's science in agronomy. We know that, mm-hmm. but you just explain that there's a lot of art in agronomy yep. too, because I mean, we've said it several times before. Uh, we both have where there's just things that when you spend that much time, with farmers, spend that much time in the field, spend this much time week to week monitoring crop. You just have a feel for things. And sometimes it's hard to, with precision, explain why you're doing something. You just go, my gut says, this is what we're doing. And this is what we got to do to make sure that we're going to get, you know, the best return possible. Absolutely. Well, there's that. And, and so Many of these crop consultants have been in the business for a long time, and I'm fortunate enough that I get to to work with them a little bit and just to kind of pick their brains, like the the agronomic knowledge that they have, and just to be able to know what areas in the field, you know, always are problem areas, right? You know, like they know where to go and check and and prioritize their time in in a field, but. Yeah, it's it's a interesting component to to Kansas agriculture that I think is maybe a little bit different, certainly than other geographies. There was something different that I experienced too. So I don't remember. It was probably two thousand one, two thousand two. I got the opportunity to go to K State, and they had. Uh, if you ever traveled through the state of North Dakota and then the state of Kansas, probably one of the biggest differences is that there are a lot of bins on the farm in North Dakota. And there was a lot of mm-hmm. big elevators in the state of Kansas. Yep. K-State hosted a stored grain symposium. And it's still to this day, one of the best meetings I've ever attended because it was so different in ag that I've ever went to. And it, it goes back to your, uh, your climate and, and your winters and these big facilities and how you go about managing grain in big facilities. And, and this was predominantly wheat Mm-hmm. But but still, it was, uh, yeah, it was really good. I, I learned a lot of stuff, met some interesting people. That was something that was really interesting to me is like growing up in, in Kansas. Um, when I crop consulted in college, it was in Nebraska. And that was one thing that struck me when I was headed up to where I was going to do my internship is the amount of on-farm storage that they had versus, I always kind of call it like the, you kind of look at a an elevator as like a castle on the on the landscape <laughs> a little bit, you know. The other thing that struck me when I went to Nebraska, and I I had to call my dad and tell him this because he was he's a case mechanic, is I was like, Dad, there are actually red tractors in Nebraska. I just couldn't <laughs> believe it. Well, well, that surprised you. They got a big letter N for their university. So, <laughs> N for knowledge, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to all the Nebraska listeners. <laughs> one of the yeah. best, one of the best experiences I had 
and I don't remember it. So there's there are two teams that we follow, of course, um, an NDSU graduate, and uh, because I have family in Manhattan and Abilene, uh, we've followed K-State for many years. I like it. Going back, uh, Darren Sproles, still one of the best players probably ever in the, not only K-State, but the Big 12. And uh, we went to the game uh, in Manhattan. Uh, Nebraska was ranked. K-State was ranked. It was uh, the throw in the snow game. And that was absolutely insane of a game. I've never been to something where it's snowing. Uh, the game's going on. Uh, the game gets over. We rush the field. Uh, we, they tear down the goalposts. We go down to Aggieville. You can't move. It's shoulder to shoulder. And then later on that night, we're at this bar, and they got this hole in the roof. And all of a sudden, the cops are coming down Main Street with the lights on. And and the stadium's, I don't know, it's a mile and a half, two miles away. Here come the goalposts, and they put them up in the, in the hole that's in this bar. And then it got really insane. <laughs> Yeah, that's some good times in Manhattan at Aggieville, K State. Uh, it's fun. It's a good school. Well, then our head, our head coach from NDSU is now the head coach. Yeah, yeah. Chris uh, is it Kleiman? Kleiman. Yeah, yeah Kleiman. Yeah. Football. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. It's connections. That's right. I wish, I wish Nebraska was still in that league when they left the Big Twelve. You know, to go to Big Ten and now the Big Ten West. Um, there's just some of those connections and rivalries. It's fun when you drive. When we drive down. You know when you're in Nebraska, and when you cross that state line, you know when you're in Kansas. You don't even have to have yeah. the sign there. It's a color change. Yeah, that was a good That's save there. I thought you were making a dig on Nebraska football. <laughs> I will say that there's 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 something to be said for everybody in Nebraska is a Nebraska fan. Versus you know you get into Kansas, there's there's Kansas, and then there's K State, and so you know. You don't ever want to mess those two up or mistake the two. Is, is there like a, a is there a geography there? Is there like a Mason Dixon line, so to speak, or or you know how does how does one choose where their allegiance goes? <laughs> Kansas uh, you to know, K State. I, I I don't think that it's it's a geographical thing. Um, when I was in Garden City, there were tons of KU fans. Very strange, but not hmm. what you would expect. Uh, but very much just kind of the segregation, like many states where. One's the ag school and one's kind of more the liberal mm-hmm. arts type type university. My kids' college fund has on it that the only way any of that money is going to Lawrence is if they're going to be a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> they are not allowed to go there unless they're going for med school. There you go. That's okay. My daughter says she's going to be a doctor, so I don't know. I may be eating crow. I, I'm not going to ever get anything <laughs> to you, though. <laughs> Sounds like you're a little conflicted. <laughs> Maybe it, it's part. Maybe. It's partly by the sport too. Uh, K State's been dominant, and uh, with Bill Schneider and now uh, Chris Kleiman and, and on the football yeah. side, and you've had a long history with KU and their basketball program. Yeah, and we we had uh, uh, Jeff uh, Jeff Boshi, Valley City went went down there. That was a big following. I uh, I remember when he was on that team. And uh, they played uh, the University of North Dakota in Grand Forks. And that's so there's our KU, if you're an NDSU fan, mm-hmm. UND. And uh, we went up to uh, the, um, the Ralph up there and watched that. And, man, that was a great atmosphere. They yeah. had a great team. And, and uh, so the coach at the time, I can't remember if that was Bill Self or, or who that was, he would take the seniors on that team and they would go to their home state 
and play mm-hmm. in front of their home crowd. Oh, really? And he said that they never. So now you're going to go into a, a state that you're one of your best players left the state to go to Kansas to play. And I think the ovation for Boshi was like for 10 minutes. And he, and yep, he said it was that that doesn't happen. It's never happened anywhere because they're like yeah. booing us. Yeah. We were just, hey, good for him. To, I mean, you got if you can go there and play and be good, go for it. That's right. that's on you, you know. Um, I will say, though, my grandpa was a huge Roy Williams fan. So I did grow up with watching KU basketball just because my grandpa really, really liked Roy Williams as as a coach. But then when I went to K-State, I was like, no. <laughs> That's when they teach you. You can't like KU. <laughs> well, regardless, I mean, it's uh, it's always good to get to different parts of the country. And, uh, yeah, maybe people think that uh, – yeah, Kansas is a wheat state, and you got, um, right. you, you, you know, your, the Chiefs are, I guess, maybe technically in Missouri or whatever you want to call it, but that kind of thing. But, I mean, if you're going to – if if someone's going to come to Kansas and they got this thing that, well, it's just a place you drive through to get to Texas or you go somewhere else, what things are in the state of Kansas that are of interest? Because every every state's got stuff. And, right. and sometimes you, you travel the same roads all the time, and so you never get off the beaten path and see things that are actually pretty cool. So, yeah. Um, so Manhattan is, is a great place to go. The Flint Hills in general, I love driving through the Flint Hills. They, they do scheduled um, burning all spring and having gone to K state. Um, it was always just so incredible when they would be burning the Flint Hills in the spring, you know, just mm. kind of, you go out at night and it's it's they've got these huge fires um burning off the burning off the prairie but that's incredible it's not close to me but something that's kind of interesting southeast kansas big brutus which was like the big coal mine digger that's not the technical term at all sure (laughs) but you know what i'm you know what i mean western western kansas monument rocks is pretty incredible to uh to get to experience what are some other things north central kansas has the world's largest ball of twine now if you go there do not touch it because there's some you just do not touch the largest ball of twine that's that's taboo that's why uh no no i think that i know i think that people maybe have um taken (laughs) upon themselves to uh defecate it in ways sure yeah. yeah. I was wondering if that's where that was going. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm like, I don't know what the what the uh nice way of saying that is. <laughs> I I have taken a lot of notes here just in the last minute. Uh, uh, me and my wife love to go polar camp around and travel and go different places and so y- you start planning trips like sure, we like to go to the same places once in a while, but it's always like mm-hmm. fun to go somewhere different and you know, Kansas is one of those places that I don't think hits a lot of people's radars. And so when you hit, you know, like, hey, where are the places to go check? And I hear <laughs> the Flint Hills, the the Big Brutus, so the coal mine. You know, that's a, yeah. that, that's kind of a cool deal. Or Monument Rocks. Or uh, the largest ball of twine. I mean, who hasn't heard of the largest ball of twine? Who indeed. Who yeah, indeed. Exactly. And so those are all super cool things. But now there's another thing I'm interested in, just with all the different things about Kansas. What does a person from South Central or Western Kansas, as far as beer goes, 
I mean, if you if you're if you're a beer person, like we we actually just the other week we had beer from Kansas. Um, where the heck was Progress. that again? I was just gonna say, if you've got Jason, if you've got a Manhattan connection, you've you've had your your fair share of tall grass, I'm sure. Those not, are some not, big ass not, cans. <laughs> not quite to the amount I'd like to see, but I'm I'm, I'm on my way. <laughs> no, I it was uh, yeah, we got some stuff given to us, uh, brought along. It was great. Yeah, there's we're always looking for those places and and trying their fare and seeing what they're like. It's always good, always good. For sure. So, so speaking of the beer thing, I mean, we had the tall grass, so we've had a taste of kind of Manhattan, Kansas, because I believe that's where that is even mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there. But uh, Holly, for you specifically, like if, if, you know, if you were drinking beer tonight with us, what would that beer be? Well, not native to Kansas, but I would be drinking a spotted cow. That would be my, my drink of choice for a, for a beer selection, for sure. That's a good choice. I like that beer. And maybe some fresh cheese curds. A lot of Wisconsin influence here. <laughs> I have good friends from Wisconsin. <laughs> Apparently not good enough because I don't have a spotted You cow. don't have any spotted cow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're just okay friends. <laughs> <laughs> cough, cough. If you're listening to this, you might need to send some beer mail. Yes. <laughs> it, you, we, we would call that happy mail, wouldn't we? It is happy mail. Are there in your in your seed territory? Is there are there any breweries out on the western part, or or not so much? Um, Hutchinson has Salt. Is it Salt City Brewing? I think is what it is. So they've got uh, a local brewery. I don't. I'm trying to think of like if Hayes has anything. Mm. They they may. I think Hayes does. Yes. They may, but I, I I honestly this is terrible off the top of my head. I can't think of what it is. I mean, don't. Don't throw anything at me. Generally, I I'm more of a whiskey drinker than a beer drinker. So that's fair. I do like my whiskey. What? Uh, what? What? Okay. Let's let's hear it. What is it? Um. So Pendleton or Crown. Generally, I'm a okay. whiskey sour. I'm a whiskey sour fan. Is that a is that a Cape State thing too? Um. <laughs> no. Well, Pendleton is a little bit. When I was in college, um. One of the one of my friends was um, I said finally got to be twenty one. Was gonna go to the liquor store. I was like, what kind of whiskey do I need to get? He's like Pendleton. That was not like college college right. person. That's not a whiskey. college budget right there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's like Evan Williams. I think you meant to say Evan Williams. <laughs> but, I was gonna um, say that was the last time I've had Evan Williams was in college, yeah. and I'm pretty damn positive. That that's the uh, that's the target audience when uh, Evan yeah. Williams markets it to look like a Jack Daniels bottle. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my husband goes through he he's the beer drinker at our house and he goes through stages where he'll just get on a kick and be like he'll drink Keystone for a really long time and then he'll switch it up and he he switched it up once and was drinking Natty Light for a while and I was like. You do know we're not poor, right? Like, <laughs> we do have money. You don't have to drink that shit. <laughs> My nephew, who is in Manhattan, who's now doing grad school in, at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, needs to hear this. <laughs> well, it's just like anywhere else. I, I, I have to know, is Bushlight even a thing in Kansas? It, it 
is. It probably doesn't have quite the cult following as like some of the I states where it's just like, <laughs> where, like it's, where where there's people with bush light wrapped combines. <clears throat> yeah, Corey. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, bush light is is a thing. Probably not as like I said, as big of a of a thing. You know, I haven't heard about the big annual bush light sale that happens at Upham. That normally happens every winter where we we have a, a local liquor store in kind of north central North Dakota that I mean they run a hell of a fire sale on bush light. And, oh really? Oh people they, they fill it by the pickup box full. So I don't know how many cases that is again. Sixty, seventy some cases, I believe. But they can fill their pickup box like plumb full, right to the right to the top rail. That's that's how serious bush light is in North Dakota, and that's probably why we love digging on bush light so much. <laughs> it's the standard that we use to compare the beers that we're drinking with, at least on the active ingredient standpoint and the volume, if you're doing my math. Yeah, yeah, you got to remember you're talking to a couple of agronomists that aren't seed agronomists. Our, our first love is uh, crop protection uh-huh. mm-hmm. on that side, so it's all about the active ingredient. Um, there was a guy that was from Illinois that, was uh and i don't know if this is regional to that geography pbr was his his jam and he got a keg of pbr once and it was like nobody wants to drink this this is horrible (laughs) that's what uh before i turned 21 and my friend's dad would get us his uh paps blue ribbon pounders i had a friend in college that was into those anymore can't do it I picked up uh, Half Brothers oh. at this uh, afternoon. I had to go to a uh, store and pick up some, some Aquavit. So Andrew Thostenson's palate will be uh, happy at Agronomy on Ice. I've got that secured. I'm hoping to maybe find a little more. we got 15 pounds of lutefisk we've got to consume. And so I had to check <laughs> out some, uh, some new beers here. And uh, Half Brothers had a new one in that I hadn't tried. And it's a porter, so oh. it's very dark. Uh, so even when you pour this, the foam is dark. There's not a white head of foam on it. It's, it's a dark foam. It's called Walking the Faded Line Porter. And it's, uh, yeah, so this is a pint container. It's pretty decent. It's a 5.7. So by my math, that is a 1.85 bush light equivalent, which I'm sure our listeners are absolutely hanging on that. This is their seat to find out what that number is because they care so much. <laughs> Hanging the faded line. It doesn't have a hockey theme to it, does it? No, it's got. Uh, it's just a very black. I'll, I'll send you a non-crushed can this week. Okay, for you the picture. <laughs> <laughs> that just tells me that you actually enjoyed your beer last week. He drank some beer. We'll we'll keep the brand name to ourselves. But yeah, I go, hey, Jason, cool. you got a picture so I can put this stuff on our social media? And he goes, uh, hold on. And he pulls a damn can out of the garbage. <laughs> that has would already been crushed. Picture, like at the trash can. That would have only made it better. It was the recycling. It was, they oh, all get they all get recycled, but good. it was it was uh, it got crushed. So I get uncrushed. Speaking of crushed, I have your BLE absolutely crushed. Oh, <laughs> sorry, on, sorry to be better than you. Uh, <laughs> so so I pulled one from Junkyard Brewing. Um, well, for you guys, I can see it on here. It's this giant can. It's a crawler. So I believe a crawler is a one pint and two thirds pint oh, okay. and pint and a no, a little over a pint and a half. Excuse me. So it's a big one. Yeah, and this one was called uh, Citra Double IPA, 
And so, I mean, as far as that goes, it's, it's telling you it's a citra hopped IPA. It's a double IPA usually means it's a little stronger. So I think this one was an 8 APV. And so that makes it on my BLE score, a 1.95. So it's almost like for every 12 ounces of this I drink, I'm drinking two bush lights. It's uh, So it's pretty strong. Question, is a crawler the same as a silo? Silo is 24 ounces, and a crawler, excuse me, is, so it's 16 plus 9.4, so it's 25.4. So... It's just a little bigger than a silo, but I've seen Bushlight makes those damn twenty-five ounce cans. So I asked that question around like, do you call them a pounder? Do you call them a tall boy? And then people were chiming in saying silos. I was like, I've never ever heard that before. And I told my husband, he's like, that's a new one. But I was like, I like that. I like the silo. Yeah, it's got an agricultural tie to it, right? Yeah. I just call it more. That is good. That is, yeah, there's three names there. Pounder, Tall Boy, or Silo. There's your poll for the... Yeah, there, there's the poll. We're going to use that for social media. Yep. I know you've done it, Holly. We're going to do it on no, our Gromus. We're going to do it on the Gromus Happy Hour uh, pages. We want to know, is it a Tall Boy, a Pounder, a Silo, or other? What else could it be? That's a, that's a good one. So, yeah. Yeah, anyways, this has been absolutely fun. Talking about Kansas agriculture, I bet you you had no idea we were going to try to go down the rabbit hole of uh, sorghum for so long. <laughs> I, I was very unprepared, but awesome. I didn't know what to expect. That's, that's uh, well, that's how we like to roll. <laughs> Not expect what we're going to talk about. Just kind of where it goes. So here's an easy one. Where can people find you on social media? Yes. And what platforms and uh, your handle, I guess. Yes. Um, so... Funny story about social media. I got it in like March of this year. And so I'm fairly new to it, but um, I am on Twitter and TikTok. HT Agronomy, which I thought was so catchy. Um, I came up with that handle when I was in a Sonic drive through. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, HT Agronomy on, on both of those are my handles. So. You hear that, Jason? TikTok. I know. TikTok. I know. It's fun. It's fun. It's a pile that's, of fun. That's all I. That's all I hear. I, I got. Uh, I got to get through agronomy on ice before I dive into this. Uh, I'll have to follow you, Holly, and just see what you do. I know it'll be good. I enjoy your stuff on Twitter, and it's always good to catch up with uh, people that do kind of similar stuff, but in different geographies and and that whole thing. So yeah, give a. Uh, Give Holly a, a follow on on those platforms because I, I think she puts out good material. And it's well, really thank cool. you guys. I appreciate that. Yeah, and and we'll, I think you said I taught you something today, Jason. And let me tell you, I feel like I've peaked <laughs> now. Oh come it was on! Probably about <laughs> gra- it was about grain sorghum, but <laughs> you know what? I got um, I've got a beer that I've seen that I have not tried yet. And I don't know why I haven't tried. It is made with sorghum. So it's oh, for people. Yeah, so. I don't I've never heard anything good about sorghum. <laughs> <laughs> now I have to do it. I, I oh, that sounds like a must now. Yep. Yeah. That's like that's like an African thing. Yeah. It is, it is mm-hmm. if you are uh, I think celiacs can't have barley, mm-hmm. can't have wheat, that type of thing. So no gluten for yep. gluten free yeah. beer. So, so it fits in there. So I'm just curious as to what the taste is. It was not mm, it was not cheap. It was um I mean I 
I say that, and you just talked about the the whatever your drink after your fish drink was. Aquavit. 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 Um, so perhaps you have a different point. Well taken. <laughs> a palate. You have a different palate. Yeah, there I got go. something. I got, I'm different. All right, you said it. That was a nice way. <laughs> uh, oh, that's good stuff. That's awesome. So, yeah, we'll make sure to tag you on social channels. Everyone else listening, HT Agronomy. That's how you'll find Holly. She's got really awesome stuff. So if you really like this conversation, I would say go to Twitter, go to TikTok, go find her there. It'll continue on. You'll be entertained probably. Go to Sonic, Sonic too. What the heck? Yeah, I know, right? Great ideas. Great ideas happen in Sonic. Ah, great inspiration comes from a Sonic drive-thru. That's right. Those those cherry limeades, they'll get you. Well, good luck with your uh, production uh, for this upcoming year with your growers and and everything you do for those people and your retailers and your accounts. Appreciate the the chat. uh, Absolutely. We'll do a rain dance. Hopefully we get some moisture and be all good. Get out of that D3, D2 stuff and yep. get into something that's a little more positive yep we understand Absolutely. we'll help rain dance with you we all need all right. it we'll we'll synchronize maybe that'll help our chances yeah so everyone listening we really appreciate everyone listening to the very end and until next time we'll catch you on the agronomist happy hour cheers cheers please hold for a very important message if you like and listen to this podcast we have a couple favors to ask If you'd subscribe to our podcast and give us a five-star review, that's the farthest right star, we'd be extremely grateful. And if you got any topic suggestions, write us a review or find us on our social media platforms on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Oh, yeah, and one more thing. Send beer. Yes, send beer. (laughs) 